Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today's guest is Jeremy Pittman. Jeremy is an assistant professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Jeremy holds a PhD in Social and Ecological Sustainability from the University of Waterloo, and he also holds a MSc in Geography. Some of his research interests include environmental policy and governance in the Anthropocene, landscape and seascape scale approaches to planning, human communities in an interconnected world, as well as a focus on social ecological connectivity. He has applied these interests to examine numerous contexts, including indigenous communities in the face of climate change, rangeland management, small-scale fisheries, and coastal governance. Jeremy was on a trip through Germany and was generous enough to take my invitation to come hang out in Bremen for two days. We discussed some joint work together, drank some coffee, and had a great time doing this podcast. So please welcome my friend, Jeremy Pittman. I, I did my, my bachelor's at the University of Regina uh, in geography. Well, I, I kind of floated around a little bit. I started off in electronic engineering, didn't really like it. You know, you come out of high school, decent at math, everybody kind of streams you towards engineering. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I started uh, my bachelor's. You know, about two years into the program, realized it wasn't necessarily for me. So uh, I had taken a geography class and really liked it. Got into human geography, physical geography a little bit too. And yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the history of, of where I was coming from academically. So I did my bachelor's and my master's, both at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada, in geography. And then now you're at the University of Waterloo, but you did a postdoc elsewhere. Where was that? Yeah, so the postdoc was split between Waterloo and uh, UC Davis, actually. Okay. So I worked with um, Mark LaBelle at UC Davis and Brad Fady uh-huh. at University of Waterloo. So Mark LaBelle's uh, kind of a policy scientist, does a lot of policy network stuff. And uh, Brad Fady's more of a, a bird ecologist, I would say. At the time, he was working a lot on the sage-grouse issues uh, in, in Wisconsin or in, in Wyoming, in the U.S. There, and my postdoc was funded by Libero Foundation, which is kind of like uh, <clears throat> basically they're trying to fund young conservation scientists in Canada, it's similar to the Smith Fellows in the U.S. So that's why I was able to kind of balance it between the two universities and take a more interdisciplinary approach. Is the Libero funding? Do you apply for that as an individual or? like a senior academic staff apply for that and then you apply for the position within the university? You, you, you apply as an individual and you create kind of a mentorship team that includes at least one academic and at least one practitioner. Um, so in my case, I had Mark and Brad as my academic mentors. But uh, on the practitioner side, I worked with uh, Tom Harrison, who is the executive director of a, of a, of a small kind of grassroots NGO um, called the South Divided Conservation Action Program, which was... <clears throat> kind of started out of community concerns around the way that uh, grasslands conservation have been playing out in Canada. So I don't know if people are familiar with the sage grouse issue, but <clears throat> sage grouse is, is is a is a well, it's 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 like a like a prairie chicken kind of thing. It's it's pretty sensitive to some of the land use changes we've been experiencing on the Great Plains, the conversion from grasslands to to um, cropped agriculture and stuff like that. So it's been a lot of it's lost a lot of habitat. Plus, just due to its nature. It, it, it gets predated a lot by things like coyotes and hawks and stuff. So um, it's vulnerable for, for multiple reasons. But um, there's been, there was a big push and a lot of backlash towards like how you might actually uh, conserve this species. Um, and so in the U.S., there was once when the, when the grouse was um, under sort of consideration for listing, there was a big bottom-up push through the Sage Grouse Initiative to actually like engage ranchers, get them a little bit more like, um, um, I guess, get them doing a, more conservation practices in general, and they they did they did what, good enough that um, the bird sort of avoided being listed, um, okay. which which is which is a pretty big deal. In Canada, it was listed, um, and it was one of the first ever. So our species at risk at risk legislation in Canada, that's what we call it, an endangered species, um, is a little bit newer. And uh, the sage grouse was actually one of the first, if not the first, um, time when some of the really heavy-handed top-down mechanisms were applied. So, so it, this, the Species at risk, at risk Act includes a broad range of mechanisms, some collaborative, some not. Um, in, in this case, uh, just due to the nature and severity of the issue, uh, there's actually an environmental protection order kind of put in place in southern Saskatchewan, southern Alberta. Um, uh, which, as you can imagine, just really upset a lot of the local people. Mm-hmm. And, and so South of the Divide Conservation Action Program was sort of uh, an initiative that, that came out. It, was kind of, it grew out of this grassroots movement to organize on conservation issues, um, but it also included um, representation from 
two levels of government, the province and the, and the federal government, as well as some conservation NGOs um, to sort of like, like, you know, you might call it kind of a collaborative partnership to kind of steer conservation in this area. So mm-hmm. um, one, of my, one of my other mentors was, um, was a, uh, the executive director for that group. And then uh, he was also somebody that I've, I had kind of a, uh, he'd been my mentor for a long time. So he used to actually work for him doing conservation stuff back in the day before I did my PhD. Um, he worked with uh, the Watershed Authority at the time. And I worked with him doing some uh, climate change adaptation planning with a lot of the local watershed stewardship groups. Cool. How did you get to then transitioning kind of into marine stuff where you are now, like away from this kind of grassland? I know you're also working on some of these projects now, like going back to the prairie. Yeah. How did you get into then marine realm stuff? And then how does that kind of fit to what you focus on now in uh, your current position? Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to do my PhD with Derek Armitage. Um, and so when I reached out to him, he does a lot of marine stuff. And, and so um, through the processes of working with him, I got more engaged on it. And uh, the first the first marine stuff I ever did kind of in the, the summer as I was transitioning from, I was working for an environmental consulting firm at the time to starting my PhD with Derek. Um, I did a, a small contract uh, doing some work in St. Lucia around the Superior Marine Management Area and just got like really interested in, 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 the, in, in, the, in the case there. And I found a lot of synergies in, on, on a few things. So thinking about um, these coastal places, the, the watershed perspective that I had before was, was kind of useful in this land-sea context where, you know, you have these coastal watersheds that um, a lot of the idea about what's happening on land is very synergistic with what's well, kind of a, you know, um, a very similar like the watershed approach that we would take. But this added sort of complexity and challenge associated with all, all, everything that's also coming from the seaward side, and just, just, and just how that, um, that, that divide, um, in some ways, sort of constrains our management of these issues, um, was was something that, that intrigued me, and so that's what kind of got got me into it. So I did kind of build it off of my previous work, but I, I found that the marine stuff was actually a way of really extending. Um, some of my previous lenses and some of the previous stuff that I was doing mm-hmm. um, and, and you know a good context to learn a lot more about how these things work yeah definitely so what are like the range of different projects that you have now so you have things both in the marine realm but you're also working on some of this range land management in Canada so what are some of those projects that you have yeah yeah so the the I'd say the two main thrusts of my, of my work I, I'm still working a lot on uh, grassland conservation um, so working with farmers and ranchers and a lot of these um, these local NGOs try to figure out uh, what um, what types of programs, policies, incentives actually work um, uh, for ranchers and farmers. Which ones are kind of synergistic with their operations? Um, and yeah, so we have a, a survey out right now uh, where we're targeting uh, ranchers and farmers in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, just to get at their preferences for conservation programs, that type of thing. Um, working with the WWF US will probably extend this into Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska, get a good comparison there. Um, from, a, from a kind of an institutional perspective, it's interesting. That border, things are similar, but changes a lot too, right. in terms of how we approach these issues. Um, the one thing that might be really interesting coming out of this comparison, if, if the data work out, is um, the role of not necessarily um, financial incentives, but more sort of like uh, legal legal incentives, so like basically protection. So in the U.S., there's things like ins- assurances or safe harbor agreements are called sometimes that are set up where basically, if you um, if you have a species at risk or an endangered species on your property, and you're managing in a way that that helps that species, um, you get sort of exempted from certain other things that might come down on you. Um, sort of some of the classic examples are where, say, you're doing something to protect the swift fox, for example, which is a, a species at risk or endangered species, but swift fox eats sage grouse. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Just that types of thing. Um, we don't have as, as well developed of a framework in Canada for assurances and that type of stuff and, and these more legally based incentives. So um, what we're kind of curious about is how, how people across the board perceive these and the efficacy of these and how they align with their operations a little bit more. Or if there, if there mm-hmm. even is a difference, maybe there's not a difference too, right? But mm-hmm. um, again, that'd be kind of interesting from a research perspective. Yeah, definitely. You gave a, we were talking a little bit yesterday about the project you have now in Uruguay. What, what are you guys going to do there? Yeah, so in, in, in Uruguay, we're just kicking up a project. Um, I've been working pretty closely with Omar DeFeo for the last few years. Um, he's, he's, he's from Uruguay. I've been working there for like the last 30 years with, with the same small-scale fishery. So um, we're, we're working on a project that's basically trying to balance. It's taking kind of a multi-level perspective on how you deal with 
um, the combined challenge of you know the biodiversity and climate change crises that are occurring in a lot of these places. So that part of of the um, of the ocean, the Southwest Atlantic, is both sort of a, a marine biodiversity hotspot, but it's also a hotspot for climate change where. Um, you've seen a lot more warming there than you have in other parts of the ocean. So you have these kind of multiple pressures occurring. Um, what we're trying to do, you know, I guess to, to confront a lot of these challenges, you have a lot of different things popping up from the international sphere, things like FAOs, um, voluntary guidelines for small scale sustainable fisheries, um, things like that, that, you know, are, all, are, are kind of, um, they trickle down through these national policies, community mechanisms, all that kind of stuff. And what we're trying to do is 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 um, find ways of sort of navigating that for communities a little bit more. So um, taking a little bit more of a community perspective on how you might navigate these multi-level changes in the governance. I have, I'm always wondering about these kind of high-level UN frameworks, particularly the, the FAO small-scale fisheries guidelines. What is your perspective? Or maybe you can just give an example in this case. Uh, we've also worked a bit in Costa Rica on similar similar issues where what is the adoption you know, of those guidelines at the national level? And then how does that play out from kind of a multi-level governance perspective down to the communities? Where, where does it get caught up or is it effective? Uh, what's your experience in Uruguay? It, it, it's interesting because like, um, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the principles or the, the things that are kind of encoded or embedded in the guidelines, some of that would already be present in national policy or the way communities kind of deal with this stuff. Um, it's really tricky to say, like, to point out an instance in my mind, they might, they might be out there, but in a lot of the places where I've worked, it's really, it's really difficult to say like, this is a place where the the guidelines have been fully implemented and explicitly implemented is also kind of part of the challenge. So some of these ideas might be present already in some of these places. Um, some of the some of the ideas might be picked up by the national government government or by um, community management mechanisms, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But whether or not they're like fully implementing the guidelines is like another question, or whether or not that was even their intent. Is another question or whether or not to be honest whether or not some of the small-scale fishing communities are even aware of the guidelines right. is, is like another story so um it's, it's going to be kind of kind of interesting to tease all that out and 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 see how that all plays out but um yeah we're at least kind of looking at it we're using the guidelines as a bit of a touchstone on our project um kind of like uh to, to yeah just to kind of see how these processes unfold i guess yeah do you think the guidelines are a beneficial thing for funding these small-scale fisheries projects like in kind of framing your proposals around getting more money to do work on on local communities that's a good question um i hadn't really thought about that part too much but i, I imagine definitely could be or certain definitely funding from certain places you know mm-hmm. um if, if your funders are aligned with the voluntary guidelines and that's once what they want to see implemented, then I imagine um, it is a good way to, to get your work funded. What are the main funders that you guys have actually in Canada? Where do you look for funding when you want to do a new project? The, the main place we look uh, as a social scientist in Canada is Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. That's like, um, uh, we have like our tri-council, which is kind of like the National Science Foundation in the US or, or uh, other sort of um, funding bodies in other countries. But in Canada, we our tri-council is divided into multiple multiple bins according mm-hmm. to discipline and the social sciences fall in the, in the social science humanities council or, or shirk we call it right yeah um so that's the main spot do you have a good understanding of what the, like the acceptance rate or the success rate is in those or does it vary across the different project uh, it varies across the different programs that they have and, and different years um but it's usually pretty good like um i don't know don't quote me on this but i'd say it's between like you know four 40 and 45 percent okay so it's pretty high i mean they're they're trying to get money into research yeah yeah you sometimes have a tough time uh getting interdisciplinary stuff funded at least explicitly <laughs> because um if you have a if you submit a proposal to shirk and it's it's it seems has a little bit too much ecology in it or something they'll say like well why didn't you apply to NSERC, which is the national science um uh funding funding arm so you know they, it gets a little bit challenging that way but um, but yeah, it, it doesn't mean that, that it inhibits that. And, and in, in some cases, the tri-council agencies would collaborate to do interdisciplinary stuff. But um, I, I should mention the other funding, the funding for the Uruguay stuff, um, which is just kind of starting is from the Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research. So that's a broader, um, it's part of the, it's, it was part of the, the thrust for those inter-American institutes and organizations, you know, that emerged sort of 20, 25 years ago. Um, so that that's kind of helping to fund some of our international work there. Your transition into the work that you do now from kind of qualitative, we were talking a bit about it earlier, into more quantitative. Where do you see 
the projects that you do now actually is it somehow a mix between the both or what would you prefer to be doing what, what are you doing now I, I try to mix right um try to find that that middle ground sometimes successfully sometimes not um uh but yeah my, my roots like starting off in engineering and stuff i was actually pretty heavy more in the quant and the math side um is sort of where i came from and then um we didn't the, the the first sort of research job i had was an internship with the prairie adaptation research collaborative which is like a, a climate change center uh to do inter- interdisciplinary work on the canadian prairies essentially based out of regina again um and i was originally hired to do sort of like gis climatology you know spatial spatial interpolations of different climate indices and do maps and that type of thing um and we had this project that was a, a joint project with the first nations university of canada where we were doing these uh, these workshops and 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 certain we had elder circles with um, First Nations communities, um, and you know we started off we'd bring these maps and all that kind of stuff and they were just almost useless <laughs> in these contexts, right? Um, and and yeah, just it got me a lot more interested in more the social and the qualitative side of these things and um, how you might unpack that. And I was lucky there was a a big project at around the this, this was all kind of happening around the, the the turn of the millennium. So this tri council as I mentioned before had some had some big kind of like millennium uh, grants that they were giving out, and uh, my supervisor at the the park the Prairie Adaptation Research Collaborative, who was more of a dendrochronologist, more of a climatologist, um, was working with a sociologist at the time from the University of Regina, Polo Diaz. Um, uh, and they got one of these big grants. And so I had the opportunity, I ended up turning that internship into a master's uh, degree where I worked with both Dave Sachin was a dendrochronologist and Polo Diaz was a sociologist to kind of look at these things a little bit more so. And, and we did some more of um, uh, bottom-up approaches to assessing adaptive capacity and that type of thing, which took me like way down the road into like semi-structured interviews and, and that type of stuff. And, and my master's was basically not really quantitative at all. <laughs> Maybe I had some numbers up front in, in the description in the, when I was describing the case studies, right? But um, uh, yeah, so I kind of like went way qualitative for a while and in my PhD. Uh, realized I wanted to start integrating more of the quantitative side again and um, relearning some of that stuff and figuring out, figuring out ways of, of making them work together because like um, I think I think the most interesting uh, ways we, we can um, we can advance knowledge on some of these things is, is by taking both into account the numbers are really good for for showing uh, evidence in different ways that things are happening but the the qualitative stuff is, is really good for interpreting that evidence understanding the backstory behind like how these situations evolve right like adding a bit of context a contextual layer into also what people what other the local communities for example how they interpret those so would you say most of your projects that you work on now are actually like teams of people yeah do you work a lot with with master students with phd students the projects and with other people at your institute and yeah would you say that you, you mostly have collaborative work in that sense yeah and and that's um Again, like the master's project that I was involved with got me really exposed to team science and interdisciplinary work, um, which, uh, again, I was lucky when I was doing my PhD, I was also part of a broader team project um, that included multiple disciplines and all that kind of stuff. And then um, I've also uh, interacted quite a bit with the National Social Environmental Synthesis Center of the U.S. Um, and and uh, Steve Alexander and I, one of my friends, we, did a, we had a, a graduate pursuit funded by them. Um, that just kind of got us like, you know, it, it was sort of like, how do you do team science with the training wheels on mm-hmm. type thing? Um, that, uh, yeah, definitely that collaborative perspective or that collaborative approach is something that underpins a lot of the stuff that I do. Yeah. What are, what are some of the hiccups? I mean, we've all, probably most of us have worked on these kind of collaborative projects or group consortium authorships on different papers. You know, where, where are the hiccups? Where does it fall on the spectrum between it, it only makes the research better to like, it's, it's a burden to work with all these people and I wish I could just do things faster on my own. That's, I'd say like, I don't know, the main thing is sometimes it takes more time to do it in a team um, just because there's more deliberation on the issues, spend more time sort of like framing the problem or, um, reaching consensus on different on, on the path forward stuff like that um, disagree I, I've, I've been lucky I've never 
seen or experienced huge disagreements on team projects, but you know, I've heard that they can occur as well. <laughs> I've heard, I've never, I've never had any disagreements or it's always for me, it's been always positive and beneficial and all the work which I've done, which is collaborative has always been better. I think in the end, even if it takes a bit longer. I agree. Yeah. And like I, I, I did, a, I've, I've done like one s single authored paper in the last few years and it's 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 lonely right it's a lonely yeah. process I'm, I'm used to more interaction and that type of stuff yeah it's almost strange now if you see a single authored paper out there and you're like oh okay that's interesting they really they had no cooperate like no colleagues who are influencing the ideas it's such a norm now that you see like so many pay people on a paper even like one or two authors is is not rare i mean it depends on your field that you're in but kind of the literature that i would say that i'm i'm engaged in yeah do you do you think about that do you think like oh i should I should work and have my single authored papers out there um, or is it really like it doesn't matter actually I just want to have consortium papers and, and work with others it, it's a good question like thinking about um, at the time I pursued it a little bit more that one that I, I mentioned because I was at, at the time I was applying to jobs and all that kind of stuff faculty positions and I was wondering like when other people read my resume are they going to want to see more of that yeah. so that was a bit of it but also just to kind of like almost reconnect with myself a little bit on projects it was, it was nice to kind of work alone for once, so even if it was a bit lonelier and that type of thing, it, it wasn't like it, it was okay, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, moving forward, I'm not sure. Like you know, maybe I'll do do a few single author papers, but I, I I don't know. I think part of the part of the fun of research is working with other people, um, and you know, developing these papers and these these products together is is is, is usually kind of a rewarding process. So, yeah. um, and you know, moving forward, I'm 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 excited for the opportunity to work more with students in that. Um, over the last year, um, don't have anything submitted or anything like that yet, but working a lot with different students to develop papers is, is also a rewarding project. And yeah, yeah it takes you in new directions. Like you, you, you think maybe at the beginning that you have a clear idea, um, you can see the end point, but when you work with somebody, it always changes and it's, and it's always in a better way, I would say. Yeah. Do all projects kind of have this inevitable change process embedded within them? Is that like an inherent process of research where you kind of start with the idea, you develop the proposal together and you have kind of clear, if you have a clear hypothesis, you have one from the beginning. But in, at least in my experience, it would be interesting to hear what you say. All, do all projects change? Is that an inevitability? Is that just part of the research project? In my experience, it seems to be that way. Um, I don't know if that's an inevitability. Like I think there, there may be... Um, with a different approach, you, you could uh, you could be a little bit um, I don't know what you'd say like a little bit more uh, heading straight towards like a predetermined goal type thing. Um, but yeah, in my experience, there's always kind of it always kind of meanders a little bit. Um, but sometimes the more interesting stuff comes out of those the the kind of the path you take. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I always find there's like a point in a project where there's like a, a critical decision. Like, do I stick try to with like how I first kind of frame this or do I kind of change it right mm -hmm. and so far I've, I've always kind of went on the on the change route but um, again you wouldn't have to but it almost sometimes feels like you have to force to stay on the same path or the original path sometimes whereas the change is maybe the path of least resistance yeah that's that would, I would say the similar more or less for my stuff you tend to kind of adapt most of it's because you at least in my the projects I've been in is you're adapting to a better understanding of the context as you go through the project especially if it's an empirical fieldwork based project you go there you do some initial interviews like oh that's not actually how that's not actually correct how we thought about that particular problem from the beginning yeah, that's interesting. One other question that I'm interested in hearing is like how you, what does your day-to-day -day, like life look like at, at the university? You know, what do you spend most of your time thinking about and doing? That's a good, so since I got a faculty position, it, it's um, a lot less on the writing than I had hoped, right? Yeah. Um, but you do, you do spend a lot of time uh, kind of making projects happen, kind of trying to set the stage for like, you know, making sure funding is in place, making sure that you know accounts are managed appropriately and all that kind of stuff it takes up more time than, than you think mm -hmm. um, that's an important part of the research obviously but it, it is um, it's not necessarily the part that all of us want to be doing right yeah exactly <laughs> and you're, you're on you said like a 40 40 20 split between research teaching and admin or extra uh, service, service, service. Call it. yeah so that's more like um, uh, services more like things that you do just to make the, the university as an organization function hiring committees all that kind of stuff right. um so yeah we're 40% we're teaching 40% research 20% service is sort of what it's supposed to be um I haven't really done the math whether or not it works out that way do you have to have accountability there or do you have to kind of report the hours that you put in you don't report the hours but you have to show uh progress on all those three things um in different ways um in annual performance reviews and 
um, yeah, like the the teaching and research as so the service part as a as like a, a new hire, like as an early career researcher, they usually go a little bit easy on you in terms of service, um, just because they, they want you to develop your 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 research profile and your your teaching philosophy and all that kind of stuff. So they do give you a bit of a break. Um, uh, but yeah, kind of day to day, like whether or not I don't know in the teaching semesters. You do a lot of teaching <laughs> and, and spending time, you know, interacting with students in the classroom, outside the classroom, coming up with your lectures. Marking is, is usually kind of kind of OK, but just even like um, developing the course takes a long time, um, especially because it's it's usually kind of the first couple times that you've taught it. But, um, but that said, like right now I'm on a research term and it's like, you know, I am, I am, I am uh, at least I have good intentions of getting ready for my classes in the fall. But uh Kind of um, on the back burner. It's on the back burner, but I, I tackle it like on the train ride up here. I was telling you before, I did. Right. I got. I made some good progress. Good. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I don't want to suck all of your time away yeah. from that. <laughs> but yeah, the the, the 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 research semesters are really nice. Like you have a lot of time to kind of think through things, and um, the pressure of teaching is off. So have a lot more writing time and that type of stuff. So cool. How many students do you supervise like at a time, or what what's been the average for you? PhD, master, bachelor. So I'm, I'm just kind of just kind of new, so uh, might be hard to talk about the average, but kind of like roughly between four and five PhD and four and five masters, mm-hmm. um, and and a lot of the PhDs are co-supervised. I, I think it, just one who's starting in the fall. I'll be the sole supervisor. So, mm-hmm. and that, that that comes back to the whole idea of like um, team science a little bit too. This like, this team mentorship is also pretty re- rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, brings a broader perspective to the sort of the guidance you're giving the student. Um, but also like like myself, it also kind of like helps me learn how to be a mentor too, because I, I'm typically doing that with people that are more senior to myself. Yeah. When do you think about? You know, what is the, the biggest contribution you make? Is it kind of the research? Is it, do you feel like it's teaching or is it supervision? Like, what do you kind of enjoy the most? And what is the, what do you perceive to be like the most rewarding or impactful part? That's interesting. It's like, yes, like I'd say it, it, it's all pretty um, rewarding, um, but for different reasons, you know, um, over the last couple of years, I would say like some of the biggest, um, maybe the biggest impact I've had is on my teaching, uh, just because that's been sort of a focus um, I, I hadn't taught before I got this job, so I, you know, that's that's where I've done the, kind of the most learning and stuff myself. Um, and yeah, like I, I don't know, it's super rewarding to interact with students, kind of see over the course of a semester how their perspectives change, um, that type of stuff. Um, but you know, yeah, I'm I'm also feeling like too um, on the research part. You're kind of going through a phase right now where it's like. Um, and getting a lot of the data, getting a lot of my new projects framed, kind of in that transition period between like, you know, PhD, postdoc, um, and then like, who, who am I going to be as a researcher, you know, um, kind of trying to solidify that a little bit more so um, over the next few years. So, um, and that again is a rewarding process, you know, um, and the super supervision as well as like, it, it, it's amazing working with um, uh, a master's or a PhD student and just kind of watching their their um their project evolve um and just seeing what kind of interests them and what sparks their interest what are the type of projects that you know if you think in the next year is what you would like to do or if you had enough you know if you had a million uh, canadian dollar grant what would you do you know what, what what are kind of the 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 pet projects you would like to kind of see manifest in the next years for you that's an interesting questions so like more and more um i could see with with a with a good funding source I like to start comparing across some of the contexts that, well, comparing the context where I work to, to other contexts, again, probably like bigger team science projects, working with other people that are doing um, or taking a similar perspective in other places to try to draw kind of broader insights. Um, so, yeah, doing some work in Uruguay with Omar de Feo right now, but also work a lot in the Caribbean, Dominica, St. Lucia, that area. Um, I have one project going there looking at hurricane recovery um, in the fisheries. So that that's one thing where I think um, there could be some some scope for comparative analysis. We chatted a little bit about that yesterday, right? Yeah. Um, just thinking about like how uh, some of the experiences there, what we're learning there, is is that something that happens in other places, or is it something that's unique to that place? Those types of questions. Um, on the grassland stuff, again, um, that that'd be sort of the main area of interest. Already, I'm trying to. Well, I have a good friend. He's he's, he's from Uruguay, but he's he's um, he's based in Netherlands now, um, Pablo Modernel, but. We've been chatting a lot about uh, comparing these sort of like, you know, this looking at the intersection of food production with with biodiversity conservation and uh, climate change 
uh, in the, um, the grasslands in Uruguay, Argentina, and uh, Canada, U.S., because they're very similar. <laughs> um, they're both considered kind of temperate gra- grassland systems. Some of, the sp- some of the migratory species would be using both places, too. Not a lot, but some of the birds would be using both places, right? So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And, and both places you have similar agricultural systems, not exactly the same, but similar, where, um, you know, cattle production is, is a big deal, but <clears throat> you also have, like, um, uh, different crops in, like, soy and stuff like that in, in South America and in Uruguay, Argentina, and, um, soy in parts of the U.S., but like lentils and wheat and stuff in Canada. So we talked about yesterday, and I was thinking about it when I went home. Was like, how do you? And we talked a bit earlier. Was how do you read PDFs, right? When when you when you come and, and there's so much out there now. Like, there's so much literature coming on almost every field. You see kind of exponential growth in the number of publications which are coming out there, and. You said that you, you have as a teaching strategy for some of your students to, for, for reading through things, but I'm not sure if most people do. You know, what is your strategy for like reading through a PDF? Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of a personal thing, like however works best for the, in the individual. But um, like I was telling yesterday, I noticed in like a lot of the students, they got a lot of readings assigned, assigned to them and it was like really stressing them out, some of the undergrad students. So um, I was thinking about like, how can I like basically tell them that they don't have to read it word for word, but they still have to understand it, right? And so I sort of reflect on like the process I go through a little bit. And um, I think it's kind of like this adaptive approach where you're like, you know, you maybe start off with a bit of a skim just to say like, is it, you're constantly trying to make the decision of like, how deeply do I have to read this, right? So kind of starting with a bit of a skim, seeing if there's like um, things that are piquing your attention for for different reasons, whether it's methodological or um, it's part of the results that are particularly intriguing or something like that. Um, but then kind of uh, systematically going through the paper, obviously starting off with title and abstract is usually a pretty good bet. Um, but then um, thinking about the methods, um, just to get a sense of, uh, you know, internal validity or just um, uh, the rigor of their approach, stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, some of that, some of the next, some of the next decisions I'd be making would be based on like, like, is this, is this a paper about somewhere where I already work? And if so, I would probably read it more in detail. Mm-hmm. Um, or is this a paper that's like somewhere where I haven't worked and probably never will, but maybe there's some interesting thing here that I can learn from that I might be able to apply in places where I work. So yeah. I, I, I would um, you know, make a decision about that and then read parts of the results or parts of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes too, like, so that that's kind of more the context-based thing. If, if it's like a, a more theory-oriented paper, a more conceptual piece, um, I might, and, and it seems like a concept or a theory that I want to learn more about, I, I might uh, kind of initially make a decision to read those papers more in detail, kind of off, off the bat, to get a better sense. Um, uh, yeah, that's kind of the general strategy, but again, like, I don't know if I always follow that or if it's kind of like... You find your own strategy, a way of dealing with the amount of literature which is out there. I find it particularly interesting always to look at the acknowledgements as well. Like I'll read the I'll read the title and the abstract and then I'll jump down the acknowledgements, see who was involved, maybe what the funder was. For me, I tend to jump to the methods before I read the introduction because, like, yeah, like you said, there's internal validity. What, what kind of study actually is this um, beyond kind of the claims of the title and, and the abstract? Kind of the next step I think that's important too is like how you take like... The information that you're taking in, how do you kind of like archive it in your brain, but also like, um, uh, I don't know, like like what process do you go through for notes and that kind of thing? And there'll be kind of a, a decision point too where where I'll where I'll say like, is this something I'm just gonna read? Um, is this something I'm gonna flag for something I might potentially cite someday? So that that's you know process of like doc- documenting it, archiving it somewhere on my hard drive mm-hmm. related to like a paper I'm working on or something where I think it could be cited, right? Do you use one of the programs like Mendeley or EndNote to organize your papers? Yeah, I've been using Mendeley, but might switch to Zotero, okay. I'm thinking. But the other thing that I use a lot for notes is Evernote. I don't know if you've come across that before, but it's, it's really, I like it because it's a simple note-taking software, just like basic text, but you can use text and tags to really like um, organize your papers and your thoughts mm-hmm. and that type of stuff. Yeah, how do you, how do you find new papers? Do you have do you give yourself do you like go out and search Google Scholar? Do you use one of the big databases like Scopus, or do you kind of rely on listservs? Like, how do you how do things come in? Honestly, eighty percent is probably Twitter these days. It's quick and easy, you know. Um, when when you're when you're strapped for time, it's a good it's a good way to find stuff. Uh, I do try to like it's it's not necessarily regularly scheduled, but I would sort of like maybe once every two weeks go to a different journal that's like a big one like one week one time you go to global environmental change ecology and society just stuff like that 
kind of see like what's what's new in those journals because those yeah. aren't always coming up in Twitter or the serves or all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, the odd one, like Google Scholar, does a decent job of like. I don't know, through their algorithms or whatever, sometimes suggesting papers that are pretty interesting to you. Yeah, their algorithm seems to be pretty tailored to your previous search history. Yeah, where does Twitter fall on the spectrum between a complete distraction for your career and uh, a, the most beneficial tool? I mean, where does it fall for you on that spectrum? I'm, I'm pretty good at not getting distracted by Twitter, to be honest. It's more of a break for me sometimes. And then uh, using it to... Uh, to actually stay on top of things is pretty good. The one thing I'm worried about with Twitter is what's it putting a spotlight on and what am I missing too? Because if, if you rely on it too much, like not everything's on there, right? Right, right. And again, a lot of people aren't on Twitter, right? Exactly. And, and again, it's kind of this algorithm-based thing that's popping stuff in front of you. So, um, so yeah, so, it, you know, as much as I use Twitter, that's maybe the main limitation that I would see is like how much does it kind of like constrain you to a certain kind of echo chamber or whatever you want to say, right? Right, right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm pretty good at not getting, I don't tweet a lot if anybody follows me. I don't tweet a lot, but I retweet and, you know, like and stuff like that. Just stay updated. I, that seems more like the norm that there's a short, there's a smaller minority of people who do a lot of the content creation on Twitter and a lot of people are just following it to stay updated, like you said. I'm going to kind of get back to this, what do you spend the day-to-day -day stuff on? Like it's, it kind of depends across the year what you're going to do research on versus teaching. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's kind of, it's really dependent on which semester I'm in, um, that type of stuff and what my kids have going on and everything else but yeah how's that balance been like with the kids like did, did you think did it have to require more time management i imagine you have to get better at managing your time yeah it's 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 you know from like a pure productivity standpoint there's times when you take a hit definitely um again like it's it's not always there but if you're ever able to find that decent balance um, it can be pretty rewarding as well. And I was kind of telling you yesterday too, like sometimes you feel like you're at the, the limits of what you can possibly <laughs> take, right? But you, then, you know, your kid will cuddle with you a little bit or something and you just like, it, it's, it can be like reinvigorating as well. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's definitely, um, I don't know, it's, not, it's definitely not something I would change. Do you know what I mean? Um, and yeah, like at certain times you can't be as productive as you'd like to be. But again, like maybe, I don't know, the one thing, the one thing that can be hard to work on sometimes is being like mentally present when you're with your when you're with your kids. Sometimes, like sometimes you know you're, you're like turning off these thoughts about your papers or like the things that you didn't cross off your to do list that day right. and feeling bad about that and just like just being in the moment with your kids. Sometimes um, that can be a challenging thing, but if you if you can accomplish it, pretty rewarding, I would say as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit specifically about the work on land sea interactions. I mean, you guys have a couple of papers where you're kind of working on the reconceptualization of land-sea governance processes and kind of moving away from this kind of siloed view of either terrestrial-based policies or conservation management, et cetera, and versus sea and how this is somewhat an artificial divide. I mean, you and Derek have worked together a bit on this. I mean, where do you see, you know, why is that needed? Where do you, and do you have any examples and cases where you see that that's really beneficial, actually, where you take consideration of both social it could be social or ecological integration. Yes, yeah, so like my interest in that was again rooted to that St. Lucia example I, I talked about previously where um, like the, the, the project we were working on was mostly focused with the, on, the, on the marine management area. Um, but through the interviews with people engaged with that, a lot of the, a lot of the problems that they felt they couldn't address were originating on, on, on the land. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think like sedimentation, erosion and, and nutrients and... Uh, waste and stuff like that a lot of the you know the, their jurisdiction was was only the the marine part so that they like could not engage with a lot of these problems which were their biggest problems right um the things that they felt like they they, they couldn't address um so that's what kind of sparked my interest in like how do you take a more uh integrated or ecosystem based or whatever you want to call it approach to kind of to governing these systems um a lot of the work i was doing before like you mentioned was kind of like the higher level conceptual part of how you might do that. I'm finding myself now digging in on more specifics of that type of thing. Um, uh, working with uh, like the fisheries in particular, so like how does this sector kind of deal with those challenges or not, stuff like that. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I still think like that's, that's still kind of an important part of the lens that, I'm, that I bring to a lot of the coastal places that I work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and yeah, something that I'm keen to work on in the future as well. Have you done any work on uh, tourism and coastal tourism? Not a lot. Like I've, I've always, because of that, trying to take that holistic perspective and engaging with as many different users as possible. Um, I've always interviewed the tourism 
we're gonna or like the hotels and the restaurants or the the dive shops and uh, stuff like that. But um, it hasn't ever been a really big part of my work, but something that I know is important in the places where I work, especially you know because a lot of times um, it can be sort of like a like a benefit for uh, you know an alternative livelihood. For, for, for certain people, um, but also it's a potential source of conflict as well and change in these communities that, um, you know, aren't necessarily used to these kind of things happening. And it's, it's tourism is an interesting sector because it's like, um, it brings kind of the global and the local and the international kind of face-to-face all the time um, in a certain place. Um, uh, and, you know, tourists kind of develop a different connection to place, I think, than the locals would have, but there still is a connection to place there. You know, but how they apply that might be a little different, and and that type of thing, and or the weight that's given, um, in sort of Sunday's governance process processes may not quite align with like where people are from and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's definitely something that intrigues me, but I haven't spent a lot of time working on yet. Actually, you're in here. You're here in Germany for a for a different project with uh, UNFCCC. What is that about? Um, so there's there's sort of two two parts of, of what we've been working on. Um, a couple of days ago, we had a meeting where we're trying to develop a policy brief just around uh, different approaches to adapting in the coastal zone. Um, it, it, it was an interesting one for me because it's, it's very tech-focused, which isn't technology-focused, which isn't something I've done a lot in the past. Um, but it, it's, uh, you know, the language they're using is, is starting to, to get more familiar and, and actually it's, it's, it's sparking my interest a little bit too. So they have this framework that we're using where we're thinking about software, hardware, and orgware. And originally I, I wasn't sure what to make of this framework, but just kind of out of this process of, of chatting with other people that, that are more engaged with it than I am, um, hardware is kind of what you think about, you know, it's the physical things that are out there that you're using to adapt. Uh, software can literally be software, but um, they also use it to, to mean sort of like knowledge and skills and, and things like that. Um, and orgware um, is an interesting concept that gets at the institutional arrangements or the governance processes that are kind of there to like support um, uh, a certain type of technology or a certain type of technological adaptation happening. So all these kind of things, all these little bits, it's a different perspective than I'm used to, but it's something that I actually am getting uh, interested in kind of, um, you know, more comfortable with uh, and seeing this, this kind of where the where the opportunities are to apply that a little bit more so in some of the stuff that I'm doing because it's, it's a bit of a different spin. It, it, it's familiar. Like when you start talking about institutions and knowledge systems and that type of stuff, but it's a little bit different spin on it, a little bit different kind of problem focus and whatnot. Yeah. That, um, yeah, it, 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 it's been kind of interesting. Um, and then the other part is, is uh, tomorrow I'll be participating in the, the research dialogues, which is sort of a, a meeting that leads up to the COP, which will be in November, I think, in Chile. Mm-hmm. They have kind of an annual... Uh, in Bonn, they have an annual research dialogue. I think this is the 11th one, where they kind of bring um, kind of interdisciplinary scholars together to present on on different things. And yeah, who who are the different researchers or groups who are involved in those? Oh, it's broad. I I I, I don't know them all to be honest. I'll meet them tomorrow, kind of thing for that. Um, uh, but it's people from. I, I just took a quick glance at the agenda. It's people from like all over the world, different institutes from all over the world. So. Yeah, how, did, how did you get involved? Were you invited into to participate? Was it you specifically or was it the institute? Yeah. Um, so I, I got invited by um, Inter-American Institute for Global Change Research to uh, showcase some of the stuff that we've been doing. I was I participated last year as well um, based on an invite from IEI, they call it. Um, uh, and yeah, that was the same kind of process this year to kind of showcase some of the stuff we've been doing uh, in, in the Uruguayan case study, but also thinking more broadly about our new project. So the new project, so we, we, Omar's been working in Uruguay for forever. I've been kind of working with him for the last couple of years there. Um, and based on some of some of the stuff we've been doing there, we want to kind of expand that um, uh, to Brazil and Argentina, close to home, but also um, looking at in doing some work in the Galapagos as well. I also wanted to talk a little bit about network analysis. Uh, you showed me recently that you you were involved at least in a review paper looking at the role of, or you can better explain it, but it was it was about uh, social ecological networks. Yeah, yeah. So it was a paper led by by Jesse Salis um, or Sales, however you say his last name. I'm not sure, but um, uh, it was a uh, yeah a systematic review that we did just on social ecological networks and how they've been applied um, and that type of thing and. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's recently out. I think it's it's uh, it's online now. Environmental research letters. Um, 
worth checking out. Um, kind of provides sort of a, a state of play at the moment. So social ecological networks, um, uh, you know, gaining in popularity over the last few years. Orrin Bonin's kind of the one that that um, really popular popularized them, and 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 has done some really cool work on that. And uh, we did sort of like where's you know where are we at so far? How are these things being applied? Um, and what's sort of the, the 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 horizon for the research? I guess. Yeah, I really also see the benefit there that using network analysis as a tool to kind of operationalize or to kind of put empirical data onto the social ecological systems concept. What are the cases which you see there now in the review? What kind of context are they doing that in? So a lot are looking at a lot of different contexts. Um, a lot of them are, uh, uh, you know, lots, a lot of them are coming out of fisheries or coastal watersheds, stuff like that. Um, but it's interesting to see like a lot of a lot of the applications like conceptually are to try to understand issues of governance. Um, fit is a big one, institutional fit, um, social ecological fit, you might call it. Um, you, you know that when you think about social ecological networks, it's it's a way of um, uh, analyzing a little bit more so just the patterns, patterns of interactions and interdependencies that are there in a social ecological system. It is a bit reductionist, you know, yeah. when, you th- when you think about the, the approach that we're using, but. Um, it's reductionist in a way that can still can, can help you make sense of some of these really, you know, these really messy systems. Um, so I think I think it's got a lot of utility there. Um, that said, I think there's like you know the applications are almost potentially endless as as long as you can think of something as as a network, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can and you can potentially use a similar type of framework to do that analysis, right? So we're kind of just at the tip of the iceberg with social ecological networks. I think mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of a lot more things that, that we can do with them. Um, and a lot, and a lot, lot more ways we can even apply them more empirically to try to figure out what's actually happening. I would say. Yeah. What is the link between like network analysis as an empirical tool and kind of network governance as like a theory, a theory of governance, which is evolving? I mean, are those kind of hand in hand, or how do you see those? Hand in hand, they, they can be hand in hand. I guess um, if you're in a network governance theory, I don't think you necessarily need to be applying like a more uh, reductionist approach approach to network analysis or, or like some quantitative semi-quantitative approach to network analysis I think network governance can be done uh, from a whole on qualitative standpoint where you might not even be drawing the the dots and the lines yeah but you're you're, you're kind of using other concepts that are that are grounded in network theory to understand what, what's going on so um, I think the you know the, the network analysis social ecological network analysis or just even social network analysis um, can be important for understanding network governance theory, but not necessarily um, needed. Like you, you can do it in other ways. In in some ways, like like you think about um, sort of the the propositions or the different hypotheses that are embedded in network governance theory. There, there may be some opportunities to use network analysis to dig in on those a little bit, um, test those a little bit more so. But um, again, that's not necessarily a requirement. They are kind of separate things. We we chat, we talk a lot about this. Like it is a is the network stuff in and of itself a theory or is it just a method, right? And right. I don't really know where I sit on that, to be honest, but, um, you know, depending on the day, sometimes I think it's a method, sometimes I see it more as like a theory or a paradigm almost, right? Um, or a lens, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah, the network governance theory is one place where you could apply network analysis, but you don't necessarily have to. Right, yeah. Where, where is the state of network governance theory? When you go into a case study and you're looking at various actor groups and they cooperate, for, for example, in a co-management situation in a small-scale fishery, do you view it as through a network governance theory perspective? Or what, where, where is your entry point theoretically in your head like when you're looking at different governance arrangements? That's interesting. So um, I don't know if I would always be applying the same one. You know, uh, Network governance theory is, is kind of like where where was, a lot of the land sea stuff that I was looking at was, was kind of, <coughs> excuse me, kind of embedded in. But um, so when, it, when I started this project again on, uh, on grasslands and grassland conservation, I was originally coming at it from more of a network governance lens, um, just, you know, path dependency there in terms of, of my thinking. But um, as I learned more about the case, I wasn't sure if that's the right one to apply there and I'm still not, right? So the the direction of that work, I would say, is coming a little bit more just from like um, common scholarship even, or uh, some of the, some of the more the institutional oriented scholarship, mm-hmm. um, thinking through those things a little bit more so. Because um, yeah, like it, it's an interesting place where uh, people there obviously have networks and that type of stuff, but um, the uh, sort of the, the cultural preferences for independence are so strong 
that yeah i'm not totally sure yet if network governance theory is that is is the right one for that case study or or, or if you could say much about network governance theory there because it's it's uh just the way the system works but you have this inherent maybe it's a bias if you could call it but you always come into the case study with your own kind of background and when, especially if you're going to a new case and you're not forced to but that's just an inherent way that you look at a case study is through your theoretical understanding or your training or your disciplinary perspective and do you think that's a beneficial thing or like do you have to go through sometimes this process of breaking down your own lens to really get to the bottom of, of a new case study i i think you know it, it, i think that a lot of times you have to break down your own lens maybe not all the time like maybe maybe the theoretical lens you're coming to a place with is the right one too right um i don't know if it's necessarily like always the case where it doesn't really fit but um at least in a lot of the places i've, I've worked it does seem like you know step one is really um challenging what you've already what you think you already know <laughs> right and yeah. kind of this process and like I, I think you rely on like your your theories or your mental models or whatever you want to call them to like um as you're taking in new information about a new place you're trying to interpret it make sense of what you're seeing all that kind of stuff and so you're relying on some of these things to, to try to do that but um as you kind of dig in more there's always these kind of like these places where it doesn't quite work right and eventually i think you have to make a decision of like do i abandon you know, network governance theory, for example, do I abandon that at this point and, and, and try to do something else? Or do I try to make this place kind of fit this network governance um, theory that, that I had before, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I do, I do think there is kind of a process there. And I think that's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the rewarding parts of research. It's right. like, you know, using these, especially the stuff that we do where we go to the places and, and try to figure out what's going on. Um, it's kind of this, it can really spark learning even at the really theoretical conceptual level as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, because like, you know, you always have to be constantly challenging that. And that's something you don't necessarily publish about, but. Right. <laughs> no, right. I mean, maybe it's an overused concept. You know, if, you, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And do we do enough inductive grounded theory sometimes i wonder if you kind of you always go and you you look for the problems which you have solutions for theoretically and you can you can place that lens over a lot of different things um, and maybe you're missing something there i just wonder yeah sometimes the grounded theory approaches can be really beneficial for looking at new perspectives but of course we have theories because they help us and we've gained that knowledge over time do you, do you have you done any like, much like grounded theory work i used to claim that i did but then i'm even more so now i i, I um i'm not sure if i was doing it right <laughs> you know is is i'm not sure like how yeah, on, on a personal level i'm also not sure totally how possible it is all the time to not come with some kind of theory in mind right um but i've definitely always tried to um uh do inductive work you know using the place to kind of guide where I go theoretically and conceptually. I don't do that all the time, um, but it's definitely been a big part of my research program in the past. Um, and uh, yeah, probably will be in the future too. I'm always, the, these days, I, mean, I asked you how you get your research, or how you get your uh, literature rather, where you find it. And I'm always, particularly for books, the books I, th I feel for me is a function of my social network. People give me recommendations for different books, but what a, have you found any particular book or article recently which is like wow that was a that was really interesting or like that changed a perspective that you could recommend or that you really enjoyed well i, I could say we're just coming from a seminar um helen what was your last name uh helen roswadowski helen roswadowski just gave a seminar and she's she's a historian an ocean history person that's done a lot of really written a lot of um books and so i uh i purchased one of her books and i'm keen to read it on the way home cool yeah i'm also i also got that on the list yeah so like that, that's maybe the most recent the most recent one that comes to mind and um and yeah, so I'm keen to kind of digest that one and kind of see. But that, that historical perspective is something that um, has always intrigued me. But again, I don't necessarily myself do a good job of that. Um, and uh, keen to kind of learn from historians how they frame things and how they look at some of these problems, right? Mm -hmm. It'd be kind of neat. But Yeah, I mean, certainly the concept of path dependency is kind of a recurring topic in many different things. And we were also, again, we were talking about this yesterday, was the the going back to the same case studies, actually, is that, you could see that as path dependency, right? Where we tend to go back because maybe it's easier uh, from an administrative perspective and you know the area. Um, do you think that's like a benefit to you? Do you feel the need that you would need to break out and find new case studies at some point? Or can you find, can you do new research in old case studies? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think you can do new research in old case studies. Um, I find that like, like myself, um, uh, I like to I like to have kind of a long term connection to the places where I'm where I'm 
uh, researching, even kind of a personal connection sometimes. Um, that's not always the case, obviously, and, and they do branch out in new places. And that is something that, you know, like I was mentioning before, really sparks learning and that kind of stuff. So it's I'd, definitely not something that I'd ever want to give up. But I also like um, uh, the idea of working with the same place for, you know, 20 years <laughs> and really kind of digging in on those on that one place and seeing what it can tell us about um, theory or just like how these things work. Um, that said, like when we were chatting yesterday, you brought up a really good point about like, so you think about like, like our, our field is really focused on transdisciplinarity and making sure that um, we're essentially having some kind of like hopefully beneficial impact from our research. So you think about like, you know, just the, the, the institutions and the funding and all that and the arrangements that go into like us working in that one place and trying to do some good work there. Is it kind of like a, there's an equity issue there, but like how we should maybe be thinking about spreading that around more or not, right? Yeah, how do we decide which places we go to to do, for example, transdisciplinary projects? I mean, with the end goal that there's going to be some sort of benefit to those places, but why that place and not the fishery down the road or the farm down the, in the, in the next county over or whatever? You know, is that something, is that an ethical thing which we have to decide about? Um, about how do we how do we select those communities? I think it's an interesting question, and I haven't I haven't read too much about that. Something probably we can discuss. I mean, you were, we were saying also earlier, like the the ethics um, is that something that ethics committee should should think about? Just the actual place, the distribution of how we engage with with society might be an interesting question. And and what places actually want us there too? Yeah, do they want us there? Is it something that was? Uh, I would assume a lot of the times not. We would just go there and we want to we want to study places because we find them interesting from a research perspective. But maybe the community doesn't necessarily want us there. And there's also this idea of research fatigue. You know, and, and one of the cases that we've uh, been working a long time here at our institute is in Bergança in Brazil. And you know, we we'd go there to do interviews a few years ago, and you know, people there have been getting interviewed for years. Um, they've been interviewed multiple times, and it's kind of like this attitude: oh, it's one of these researchers again coming around. Yeah, and I think that's that's something that needs to be considered when you keep going back to places. I think there's this this benefit of going there and knowing people, and especially if you can give the knowledge back. And yeah, and that's, that's making me think too. Like, there's um, I think I need to try to track our impact a little bit better because if if like you think about research fatigue, if those interviews, if people were perceiving a benefit from those, they might not be quite as fatigued by them too, right? Right. So so you know maybe there's um, uh, you know kind of something we can do there to kind of uh, at least track better why why people are getting fatigued as yeah. well, right? Yeah, I think one thing I've thought about, I mean, particularly at our institute, because we work only in tropical areas, this idea of kind of knowledge grabbing, where we kind of go to places, we harvest the knowledge, and then we take it back to our research institutes. Many of us are in Europe or in North America, and then we kind of reap the benefits of that knowledge and publish on it. And it, certainly from an individual perspective, it helps your career. Um, but it also helps the institute and the, and the knowledge systems, the universities within those those countries, and not always does it go back right to the local communities. So there's this kind of knowledge grabbing, same if knowledge if you want to see knowledge as a resource. I mean, is there any discussions? Do you have any of those within your ethics committee, for example, or within your faculty when you think about projects? Not at that level, you know. Um, the ethics uh, discussions I usually have are more about like how do we protect our participants mm-hmm. um, from any sort of like risk that might come from them giving us an interview, that type of thing, like protecting their confidentiality. More at a personal level, the individual level. Um, and just like how do we make sure that you can you can be a participant in, in our research without, um, you know, your boss getting mad at you or your, your community member your your um your peers in your community getting mad at you and stuff like that it's kind of like for the work that we do that that's that's a big part of, of what the ethics um what the, what the ethics approval process is 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 um is looking at but you know thinking about the ethics of our uh sort of research practice more broadly i think these things are something that we probably haven't thought through as well as we should have right it's interesting, I mean, because we want to produce knowledge as the public good, um, at, at least the publicly funded universities do. That common property or whatever, that knowledge that is produced for everyone to use, is uh, it doesn't always go outside of the borders of those systems, even though the knowledge that we, we, we've uh, taken comes from, from beyond. I think that's an interesting question. I'm sure there's, there's probably a whole subfield of people who think about those issues. The other thing is kind of like, like which public actually benefits, right? Sometimes, sometimes we look at a case study and learn a lot about um, how you can set up a co-management arrangement really well or something like that. And those lessons aren't always fully transferable, but sometimes it might not be that actual community that benefits from that knowledge. It might, you know, a community on, in a different part of the world might, somebody might read that paper or something, 
hopefully yeah. or whatever yeah. and, and, and then those kind of things benefit people in different places so sometimes maybe there's maybe a mismatch too between like uh, where the knowledge is being sourced and then where the benefits kind of lie. Do you guys have a policy for open access at the university? There's, um, uh, Canada's getting, uh, going towards that a little bit, having like an open access, basically anything that's uh, funded by the public agencies are supposed to be open access. Um, institutionally, like at the University of Waterloo, I don't think we have a policy of it, an official policy of it, but it's something that is definitely promoted. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's often uh, you know it's something that I think open access is 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 amazing something that I definitely support but in figuring out like how do we actually get there is still tricky because um, we don't necessarily have uh, the funding available all the time to make everything open access it's, it's not even though it's a push from the public agencies they're not giving more funding for that to happen so so it kind of puts uh, puts pressure on your research grants and all that kind of stuff. Um, probably takes opportunities away from students more so, you know. Yeah. Um, so, it, so you know, just kind of thinking through that and how we kind of roll out open access, um, I think will be kind of a bigger issue in Canada. So you have a paper and you want to submit it, so you're trying to pick a journal, like where along the criteria of importance is open access for you? It'd be high up, but um, kind of like where's it, one of the big things would be like kind of the, the joint, um, you know, open access plus cheap open access or affordable open access, right? The non-profit-based open access. Non-profit-based, yeah. Although there seem to be a little yeah. bit cheaper ones which are run by communities themselves. Yeah, exactly, right. And um, that's probably that's probably higher up on, on my priority list. And, you know, sometimes it's like, um, sometimes I just can't afford the open access fees for part of it, um, depending on how the project was funded, right? Or right. sometimes you publish a lot after the grants kind of finished too, right? So there's all these kind of mismatches to deal with. It seems these days I'm always kind of challenged to what journal I should actually submit to. How do you think about what journal you want to submit to? I mean, there's so many options these days. How do you think about that? That's interesting. Like impact factor definitely does play a role. Like unfortunately, um, you know, tenure track, something you got to think about a little bit. But um, also like, who do I want to talk to with this paper? Like like who do I think is going to read it? Trying to get in, in a journal that... Will reach those people. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd say a little bit is like uh, trying to publish in places where I haven't published before is another thing that I kind of think of a little bit. Yeah, so some diversity. I was wondering there is like, is it good to kind of say this is my journal and this is kind of my community, or is it good to kind of have a wide spectrum of papers across uh, uh, different journals? I, I've I've kind of gone for the latter route, you know, um, trying to get them in in um, as broad a spectrum of journals as possible. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the better approach, but it's, it's the way that I've approached it so far. When you think about if you're going to submit tenure or for people who are thinking about applying for faculty positions, I mean, what is your insight on how those are evaluated? I mean, is it, do they look at how important you feel it is that they look at impact factor? How important do you think it is that they look at how well established a journal is, what the editors are, for example? They would definitely be looking at um, uh, impact factor, but it would be like sort of a disciplinary specific impact factor, you know, so uh, some some journals that have like a, a low, a relatively low impact factor that are like the top journals for their discipline, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they have like the best reputation for their discipline. So they would be kind of looking at that stuff when they're going through tenure um, applications and whatnot, based on my perspective, you know, of, of how this how this process works. Um, but they do, and, and they do try to, at least at University of Waterloo, balance that idea of um, quality and quantity. So, you know, quantity is important. It's one of the metrics that they do look at, but they do try to incorporate at least qualitatively the, the quality of, of, of your scholarship and your impact as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, one uh, paper in a top, like, you know, planning or human geography journal or something um, that a lot of people read and had a lot of buzz about it, Maybe not even a lot of citations because how many can you expect over the course of a couple of years, right? right? Um, but just like something that, that made a bit of a splash would be weighted higher um, than like, you know, a handful of articles that nobody's really talking about or thinking about or anything like that that are just kind of everywhere. There's interesting things circulating on Twitter and I don't know the stats, but a, there's a, a, a high percentage of papers that get published that don't get cited ever, right? right. right? And that that's kind of... You know that's that's a problem, right? And that's, um, you know, and, and it's not necessarily saying those papers are are poor quality or anything like that. But you know, that's one that's one place where maybe the Twitter spotlight has directed people away from those papers too, or whatever. You never know what's going on there. But um, uh, yeah, it's something that that they would be kind of looking at a little bit when they're reviewing your file. 
um, and stuff like that. I talked a bit with Michael Cox. He was also making a point about that kind of this rich get richer on the citations because when, especially when if you have limited time and you're looking for good papers to cite within your field, particular topic, you know, especially if you use those search engines like Google Scholar, they tend to prioritize you know higher cited papers, for example. And then it's like, oh well, it seems like everyone's citing this paper. It must be something interesting there um, to do. Then it's more of a conformity aspect. Then you also cite it, and then it just kind of has a positive feedback loop um, in terms of what papers are the most cited. Well, do you want to tell people where they can find you online on Twitter? Yeah, um, at, on Twitter, I'm at uh, Pittman17, P-I-T-T-M-A-N-1-7. Um, it's based on my email address, my first email address that I got when I was 17. I haven't nice. changed it since. <laughs> um, uh, or if, if, you, uh, if you just Google Jeremy Pittman U Waterloo, you'll get my, my profile page at the University of Waterloo, which doesn't have tons on it, but at least has my email address and stuff like that. Cool. Sounds good. Well, let's have a coffee and go in the sun. Awesome. Sounds good. If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.